Hello, and welcome to Heavy Metal 101. This is a podcast where we're going to investigate the history and the repertoire of one of music's most oft-maligned and misunderstood genres through the eyes of myself, something of an expert, a musical dork of the heavy metal persuasion, and my colleague and good buddy, John. Say hi, John. Hello. Uh, John, who is essentially the brilliant musician, a wise man, but uh, is it fair to call you a heavy metal novice? That is more than fair. Yes. So, you know, Heavy Metal 101, we're kind of set up here like a, a little bit like a, like a class. You know, I am the, the pedagogue, the teacher, the instructor, and John is my um, unruly, rude, sleepy student. Yes, that yes. is accurate. Good. And and so are you guys. Although many of you will come into this, I'm sure, knowing oodles of information about heavy metal. Hopefully we can all learn something new, different, and exciting here in this podcast. So let me tell you about myself. Uh, my name's Eric. I'm a composer. I'm a pianist. I'm actually currently a PhD student in the field of music education. And I'm also a professor. I've been working for many, many years teaching music history, music theory, composition at a wide variety of universities. But that having been said, I've been a huge heavy metal dork since the age of around 11, which was a long, long time ago. So even though I spent a lot of my life in the world of classical music, heavy metal is, in fact, my first musical love. John, why don't you tell us about yourself? I'm John. I am also a, a classical musician. I'm a conductor. I'm also at the nearing the end of a doctoral program studying orchestral classical conducting. And I don't know anything at all about metal I never listened to it, and am walking into this completely and woefully unprepared. Oh, it's so nice. Um, yeah, so so John is our is our, uh, our our idiot for for our purposes here today, and I'm uh, a genius. Would you say that's fair? No. Oh, good, good, excellent. Well, I'm enthusiastic, <laughs> if nothing else, that's, enthusiastic. That's fair. So, <clears throat> for today's episode, this is the first episode. We are going to talk about the birth, the bloody gory, horrifying birth moment of heavy metal. Ground zero, if you will, if you'd like to mix your metaphors. Heavy metal has a controversial, well, everything, but its past, its birth date, is also considered a little bit controversial, but I can trace it to a specific date. That date is Friday, February 13th, 1970. A day whereafter nothing in music, or at least in heavy metal music, would ever be the same again. John, what happened on February 13th of 1970? You know this. February 13th, 1970. That's a Friday. I believe it was rainy. Ooh, very rainy. It's a wet day. Yep. Moist, yep. if you will. Damp everywhere. Mm -hmm. The whole mm -hmm. world is damp. And, and from, from the moldy dampness arose what magnificent musical opus? Black Sabbath's <gasps> album, Black Sabbath. Ooh. Crafty name, I like it. Yeah. Um, yes, the eponymous debut album of the mighty, magnificent Black Sabbath, one of England's finest exports to the world, and the first definitive, unambiguous heavy metal band and heavy metal album, in my opinion, and the opinion of many others. Now, there is proto metal. There are roots to heavy metal going as far back as the 19th century and maybe even earlier, but 
this album, to me, and particularly its first track, which is going to be our primary focus today, is the very beating heart of heavy metal and its initial starting off point. So let's hear us some heavy metal goodness. Let's all take a listen to track number one, Black Sabbath, from the album Black Sabbath by the band Black Sabbath. Hiya, this is Eric here from the future. In this version of this podcast, unfortunately, we do not have the rights to play the wonderful track Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. At this point in the episode, if you have the opportunity to do so, I would advise pausing and going and searching out that wonderful tune so that you have a better frame of reference for the forthcoming conversation. If not, you do you. Please feel free to just keep on going. And now, back to the episode, already in progress. John, so you literally heard this album for the first time like a month ago, right? That is correct. All right, so uh, uh, to my mind, you can't hear this without having your life utterly change. You're not the same person you were before. You seem different to me. I mean, you're sort of broken, I think is what I would say. Um, but what, can you share your, your thoughts on uh, this opening track of this here album that, to me, is so very important? It was fine. So for me, again, I got no knowledge coming into this. So this does not stand out in my mind as being the birthplace of something new. It stood out in my mind as being four and a half minutes of the same three things over and over and over again. Does it sound like this? Yeah, it did. Which was fine. I was, you know, it's not like that's bad, but it was a lot of that, uh, followed it's by a rather exciting ending. Four and a half short minutes mm-hmm. of the same riff over and over again. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I, I mean, to me, it's not enough. I want a whole album. I want seventy-five minutes of of this. And I'm sure there are other people out there who also would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, being the product of my generation, have a very short attention span. Ah, that's fair. And uh, got a little bored. Ah, okay. Well, I mean, look, this is the very beginning of metal. And let's face it, it really is four and a half minutes of the same riff over and over again. So let's talk about what it is that does, at least in my estimation, make this so very special and so important to the history of heavy metal music. So first off, the very beginning of this album is not the song itself, but rather this creepy ambience, the sound, as John pointed out, the rainy, rainy sound of sort of a thunderstorm and a bell tolling in the distance. Now, even before you hear that sound, it's important to note the first thing you're going to do, at least in 1970, before Spotify and other such uh, digital means of listening to music, you're going to have an album in your hand. I've just brought up on the computer the album cover, the LP cover it would have been at the time, and it is a pretty spooky image. Would you agree that this image is dark? Sure. To describe the album cover to those people who have never seen it before. Well, in the foreground is a... uh... Lady, who... Clearly an evil witch, right? I mean, looks creepy. I'll give you creepy. We can't see their eyes. Yeah, black eyes. Black eyes. A lot of black going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Colors of the album themselves are are not quite black and white, but uh, everything's a little bit washed out. There's a lot of red that's brought out in the exposure. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in the background, we see a lovely English cottage that probably would sell for, you know, Hundreds of thousands of dollars today. Yes. 
but it, but it's a little in, in the context of the image. It's kind of a, you know, it seems to be possibly haunted. It's got a creepy vibe. I mean, I would be scared to sleep there alone, I think. But but suffice to say, it is definitely, it's an image in blacks and reds and and, and a washed out, darkened sort of quality. And that really, that mood is what separates Black Sabbath from from so much music that came before, so much of that proto-metal that I mentioned previously. You know, your Led Zeppelins, uh, your Creams, bands like that, they're pretty heavy. You know, those were hard rocking bands, but they didn't have that darkness. You know, there's some other bands. I think of a band like Coven. They were dark. They were literally a satanic band. But a band like that was playing very sort of straight ahead rock and roll music that didn't have anything heavy about it. Black Sabbath, with this song on this album, is really the first band to bring all of this together. This post-1969, you know, Altamont has happened, the summer of love is over, the world is changing, and Black Sabbath really bring that vibe together with a musical primal ferocity that is this riff, this heavy, dark riff, and this album cover, the sounds of thunderstorms, all this spooky stuff. It's really something new and different. So let's talk about the riff itself. Now, this thing is probably worth noting. This interval, what's the name of this musical interval, oh, music theory nerd, oh mine? A tritone. A tritone. Okay, now the fancy name for this, if you want to Latinize it, is Diabolus and Musica, the devil in music. And the story that us musicologist types tell our music students, which is totally untrue, but still lots of fun, is that this was banned. That anyone who performed this sound back in the Middle Ages would be strung up and executed for their crimes. Now, I don't think anyone cared nearly that much about these things, but a lot of the evolution of music really is based on avoiding that particularly dissonant or uh, unstable musical sonority. And Black Sabbath... immediately begin their album incorporating the sound of Diabolus and Musica. So there we have some spookiness with a lot of history built in. Now, fun fact, John, being a classical music nerd, can tell you about Mr. Gustav Holst. Who is Gustav Holst? Uh, Gustav Holst was an English composer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When was he active? I don't know. Yeah, sometime in the past. In yeah, the 20th century. All dead. Would we agree? 20th he's a, century he's, a, he's a dead white guy from the 20th century. Can we? Yep. Okay. So Gustav Holst wrote a piece called The Planets, which was written, finished at least, in 1917. It's a suite, a collection of pieces all based on planets um, in our solar system. And probably the most famous one. What's the most famous one? From the planets? Yeah. That would be Mars. Ooh. You want to you wanna sing us a little bit of Mars? What a beautiful singing voice you have. Thank you. So that is not entirely dissimilar from what we hear in the opening strains of the tune Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. And the reason for that is because the way that this song was written was... Geezer Butler, I believe that's one of your favorite names, right? It is definitely one of the better names. Geezer Butler, the bassist of Black Sabbath, was sitting around in practice one day, noodling on his bass, 
trying, or maybe successfully, I wasn't there, playing that little riff, when Tony Iommi, the guitarist extraordinaire and principal songwriter, it caught his ear, it was a little earworm, and so he decided to go off and sort of write his own variation on that, and that's where we get... Gustav Holst to Tony Iommi. So classical origins of Black Sabbath. Very, very interesting stuff. It's interesting, right? I am fascinated. He's hooked. He can't believe the connection between Holst and Iommi. Two of two of John's favorite people, right? Is that fair? Oh uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. So that's how the song sort of came to be from Tony Iommi playing off of Gustav Holst's sort of proto-riff from the planet, specifically Mars, bringer of war. And this is also worth noting sort of part of the, the change in the band Black Sabbath from being essentially a blues band. I don't know if you know this, John, but Black Sabbath was actually formed under a different moniker, a much lamer moniker, and that would be Earth. Hmm. Yes. A terrible name. Terrible name. Earth was formed in 1968, and they were a blues band. They were, you know, it was part of the blues boom in Great Britain. They were a bunch of a bunch of people trying to play sort of a synthesis of rock music and American blues. And so Black Sabbath, for the first year of its existence, was a blues-based band called Earth. But with the song of the name Black Sabbath, and also with the change of name from Earth to Black Sabbath, which came about when Geezer Butler, our favorite bassist, saw a marquee with the title Black Sabbath on it at a theater across from where they were rehearsing, Black Sabbath being a film by the Italian director Mario Bava, a horror movie, he thought to himself, gosh, people like horror movies, people like spooky things, why don't we become the oral equivalent of a horror movie? So we go from being a blues band, a hippy-dippy blues band called Earth, to Black Sabbath with songs like this here title track of the eponymous album. So this is how heavy metal really becomes something other than a derivation of sort of English faux blues rock that is, you know, produced all sorts of great music, but wasn't in and of itself a new genre. It was just sort of a form of hard rock. Now, another thing that can't be dismissed is the lyric here. Now, this lyric, which was penned by both Ozzy Osbourne, famous singer extraordinaire. John, you've heard of Ozzy Osbourne. I have. John has even heard of Ozzy Osbourne, who we'll talk about in later episodes and maybe a little bit uh, towards the end here. Ozzy Osbourne and Geezer Butler, who's the principal lyricist, wrote this lyric together. The lyric to this song was written after Ozzy gave Geezer, Ozzy gave Geezer a Latin text on the occult and apparently had all sorts of spooky pictures. There's an old book, spooky engravings, occult themes, and apparently Tony Iommi, ooh, let's see, we're, we're, we're raising the occult, there's spooky sounds in the distance, um, he had a vision that night uh, where he saw some sort of robed figure standing at his bed in the dark, and it just totally freaked him out, and this, this was the origin of this lyric. John, could you read us at least the first two verses of this lyric? What is this that stands before me? Figure in black which points at me. Turn round quick and start to run. Find out I'm the chosen one. Oh no. Oh no. Big black shape with eyes of fire. Telling people their desire. Satan sitting there, he's smiling. Watches those flames get higher and higher. Oh, no, no. Please, God help me. So, Satan. We've got Satan. 
obviously, you know, Satan is kind of intrinsic to heavy metal. But, now this is important, Black Sabbath has a certain intrinsic dichotomy in them. Yes, they're singing about Satan and figures with eyes of fire, but they're asking God for help. Oh no, no, please God help me. Black Sabbath were not in fact a satanic band, but they were willing to delve into these occultish themes. So we're getting here just all sorts of information about this band. Are they, they you know, we got religious uh, implications asking God for help help. We've got Satan sitting, you know, uh, smiling at you, flames getting higher and higher. This is dark stuff. Regardless of anything else, we got dark lyrics. We've got a spooky album cover. We've got a riff incorporating the tritone. We've really got in the opening track of this album, something very, very sinister. To me, John fell asleep while listening to it, but John's a sinister guy. So you know, this is just this is where he lives. Um, but to me, we're really, we're really, you know, all right, fine. In 2021, that terrifying, but at the same time, this is definitely some dark territory that we're in. Okay, now a little bit about Black Sabbath, the band, a little bit about the album, and then we'll let you go and listen to the album for yourself and explore Black Sabbath for yourself. The band itself, we got four members. We got the great Tony Iommi on guitar, and I can't not tell the quick story about Tony Iommi's origin mythos, losing his fingertips on two of his fingers of his fretting hand at the age of 17 in an industrial accident. Now, how would you feel if you were 17 years old, a guitarist, and you lost your fingertips? That would be a rough day. Yeah, yeah, sad day. Well, Tony wasn't going to take that lying down, so what he eventually would do, after probably a period of serious depression, is he melted down some plastic and formed himself some synthetic fingertips, which he would go on to use to fret a guitar successfully. The important thing about this for our purposes is that it led to Tony using light gauge strings, which gave the music a sort of down a heavier sound, a lower sound, or sort of you know, they're not and they're not as taut as the strings that most guitarists were playing with. And eventually it would actually lead to him tuning down his guitar so that instead of playing, you know, with your lowest string on E, he would be playing on D or even lower, so that it was easier to fret the guitar, and that would give Black Sabbath an increasingly heavy sound. The other three members, all of these members, I should point out, are from Birmingham, England, a bit of an industrial wasteland of post-World War II England. Geezer Butler, birth name Terence. Bill Ward, drummer, jazz drummer in background, which gives a particularly unique sound to Black Sabbath, a brilliant drummer, I should say. And of course, the iconic Ozzy Osbourne, born John Michael Osbourne on the vocals. So Iomi was the primary songwriter and Butler was the primary lyricist of this band, formed in Birmingham, England in 1968 and rechristened in 1969 Black Sabbath after the Mario Bava movie starring Boris Karloff of the same name. Okay. Last but not least, a little bit of background on this album that I think is fascinating. John, did you know that this album was recorded in just one day? I did not know that. This is a miraculous fact, would you agree? I'd say that's pretty impressive. Yes. I mean, Black Sabbath are a band that's oft regarded as being a bit primitive, caveman-like. But damn it, these guys could play without a doubt. And they managed to put together this masterful recording in one 12-hour session with almost no overdubs. We're essentially listening to a live band, and I think it's a pretty damn good live band. 
That's fair. That's yeah. fair. Yeah, that's that's my opinion, and I'm sticking with it. And if you listen to Black Sabbath, the album, and Black Sabbath, the band, you will find that despite the relatively simplistic riffs, there is some very sophisticated musical stuff going on, particularly in the bass and the drums, that really keeps this music incredibly interesting on listen upon listen upon listen. So the album was released in Europe in a slightly different configuration to what we in America know. So in the European release, there's actually two cover songs. One that didn't make it onto the American release, a terrible song by the name of Evil Woman by the band Crow. This song, fortunately, for those of us in America, was removed in this slightly more streamlined American version, which consists of the song Black Sabbath, which we've talked about at some length, the song The Wizard, which is a very groovy, sort of blues, harmonica-driven song, a little bit more in the sort of English blues boom idiom, would you agree? I'd say very much more in that idiom. You particularly liked that song, right? I did. I mean, that, that song kind of reminded me of Cream and other bands of that genre that I'm more familiar with. Mm-hmm. It's perfectly enjoyable. Yeah, and I think it's that it's that sort of that the difference between a dark, sinister oral horror movie like Black Sabbath and then these more groovy, accessible blues-based songs like The Wizard or track number four, Wicked World, which is not available on the uh, European release but is on the American version, that really give this album sort of a unique quality. We get two sort of suites of songs on this album. Track number three is Wasp slash Behind the Wall of Sleep slash Basically slash Nib. And what that really is is just two songs, Behind the Wall of Sleep, and nib, but for the purposes of ASCAP money, Black Sabbath got more money the more songs were played. They divided sort of introductions and whatnot into their own tracks. And they do the same thing on the final track, track number five on the uh, North American release, which includes A Bit of Finger, an allusion to Tony Iommi's incident, A Sleeping Village, which features the heavy metal standard mouth harp, beautifully, I might add. And then, one of my fun facts from this album, a cover of a song by the Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation. John, you would agree that that's one of your favorite bands, no? Absolutely. Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation is, without a doubt, top five all-time musical groups in history. Check out John's Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation podcast when you get a chance. I think you'll, you'll really learn a lot. About that, but no, actually, the thing about Ainsley Dunbar, I you know, I've never heard the Ainsley Dunbar retaliation, but Ainsley Dunbar actually would go on in the early 1970s to play for one of my personal musical heroes, Frank Zappa, in the early 70s incarnation of the Mothers of Invention. Uh, English drummer, really talented guy, but anyway, important for us because Warning is the final song on Black Sabbath's debut album, and it's a cover. Now, it, to me, it's a little bit problematic. It's a cool song with a good riff, but it's really mostly an excuse. It's about, uh, if you look at the, you know, it's in a suite in the North American version. In the European release, it's all by itself. It is 10 minutes and 28 seconds long, which is pretty long for a track. And the reason it's so long is because Tony Iommi spends a lot of that track noodling uh, his little face off. And to me, probably one of the weaker things about the debut album, one of the reasons why, even though this album is monumental, uh, incredibly important, it's probably not as strong as the other earlier Black Sabbath albums, basically everything from Paranoid through Sabotage, all of the, the prime 1970s Sabbath that is just the absolute cornerstone of the heavy metal repertoire. That's a bit about the album itself. Now, 
I want to end on an interesting note. We put this in some context. Now, two bits of context. Context number one, this album is actually pretty popular. Now, even though John never listened to it before this podcast, you know, John's a bit of an idiot. Would you would you agree with that? Uh, no. I would say that, musically speaking, my tastes are not terribly diverse. Ah, that's fair. That's fair. It's a bit of an idiot. So... Despite the fact that John never heard this album before, this actually made it all the way to number 23 on the U.S. Billboard charts in 1970. Now, that is pretty incredible for a debut album by an English band that had, at that point, never even toured in America. Um, And yet, word of mouth was such that Black Sabbath made it all the way to 23 with their debut album. In the U.K., where they were a much more known commodity, they made it all the way to number 8. So this album, you know, made waves. People heard it. And that's important to understand because if it's going to found a genre, people are going to have to hear it and be influenced by it. Now, despite the fact it was quite popular amongst the populace, it's very interesting to see how music critics and the music intelligentsia of 1970 reacted. And so I want to end by reading and discussing a little bit of a review from the great Lester Bangs of the Rolling Stone. Uh, have you Are you familiar with the magazine Rolling Stone? I am indeed familiar with this magazine. Ah, yes. An iconic magazine, but one that almost always gets it wrong if you read their historic reviews. And so I'm going to read a little bit of this compelling review, courtesy of Lester Bang. Over across the tracks in the industrial side of cream country lie unskilled laborers like Black Sabbath which was hyped as a rockin' ritual celebration of the satanic mass, or some such claptrap, something like England's answer to Coven. Well, they're not that bad, but that's about all the credit you can give them. The whole album is a shuck. Would you agree it's a shuck, John? Uh, no. Yeah, I don't think it's a shuck either. Actually, I'm not sure what a shuck is. No, I have no idea. No. Don't you shuck clams? Yes. How is an album a shuck? Apparently this album is a shuck. All right. Despite the murky song titles and some inane lyrics that sound like Vanilla Fudge paying doggerel tribute to Aleister Crowley, the album has nothing to do with spiritualism, the occult, or anything much except stiff recitations of cream cliches that sound like the musicians learned them out of a book. We should do a drinking game where every time he mentions cream, we have to take a drink. I don't know that we'd be able to leave this desk. Yeah, a lot of cream references from uh, Lester Banks. Cream cliches, musicians learn them out of a book, grinding on and on with dogged persistence. Vocals are sparse, most of the album being filled with plodding bass lines over which the lead guitar dribbles wooden claptonisms from the master's tiredest cream days. They even have discordant jams with bass and guitar reeling like velocitized speed freaks all over each other's musical perimeters, yet never quite finding sync. Just like drink cream, but worse. I don't like that review all that much. No, this guy sounds like a prick. Yeah, he's kind of a jerk. I mean, here's the thing. Apparently, of the Rolling Stone critics, all of whom I think maybe were jerks, uh, Lester Beggs actually did kind of come around a little bit on Sabbath as the 70s progressed and he realized they were there to stay. And really, they did get progressively better from this album on uh, for quite some time. But this is the general sense that the rock critics, the sort of post-hippie rock critics of the early 70s felt about heavy metal. And it tells it, it tells a lot about sort of the elitism and really, I mean, I hate to say this, but the sort of stupidity of these critics who didn't just had no idea that they were hearing something new and something that would be around 50 years hence in a way that a lot of the music that they were probably listening to and celebrating, maybe less so. 
it's, you know, Lester Banks, rest in peace, but uh, I hope he would look back on this review and be a little embarrassed. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am far from a rock critic or even knowledgeable in this area. I did hear similarities to Cream, but I didn't think them to be necessarily negative. And <laughs> this is just, uh, it, I mean, it's completely dismissive of something that shouldn't be dismissive. About. Yes. I mean, it's not that bad. Yeah. Yeah, it really. Thank you, John. It really isn't that bad. That's it's beautiful. Not. And on that note, we come to the end of our first episode. Black Sabbath really are not that bad. Thank you, John, for clarifying that. So that's it in a nutshell. We'll talk more about Black Sabbath and their history and their repertoire in later podcast episodes. This is just dipping our toe into that opening track, a little bit of the history and context of this first album, this birth moment of heavy metal. John, any last thoughts? No, I think it being not that bad is is pretty much it. I, I feel very good with that. Thank you. If you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, please feel free to email us at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. Maybe maybe we'll become friends. Maybe we'll make friends this way. Wouldn't that be nice? I hate people. Yeah, we don't like people that much, but but at least send us your thoughts and we'll we'll certainly reflect upon them. With that having been said, thank you for joining us, and please do check out future editions of Heavy Metal 101. Later. Say bye, John. Goodbye.